The following podcast contains subject matter that may not be suitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Tupelo, Mississippi, 2015. What a lovely day, Kate thinks, stepping out her front door with her watering can. When the kids get home, she'll have to plan on spending some time out back, putting that playset to use. As she begins pouring water onto the devil's ivy she placed just last week, she notices Ms. Watkins across the street doing precisely the same thing. She's watering the spider plant under her porch or whatever that stuff is. Kate waves, and Ms. Watkins waves back. Oh, great. She's walking over. It wasn't an invitation, Miss Watkins. I was just trying to be a friendly neighbor. She pretends not to see her coming. Thinks about making a break for the door. Isn't it a party day? No choice but to engage. Isn't it, though? Kate replies. I see y'all coming and going all the time, but hardly ever get a chance to check up on you. I know it, Kate says. Everybody just stays so busy. Ms. Watkins, Kate thinks, is getting that look in her eyes again. It's that same weird way she always ends up staring at her. Like she suspects her of stealing a pie out of her window. Have y'all got settled in all the way? How you like in the house? You know what, Kate thinks, maybe taking a moment to talk isn't such a bad thing. In fact, she may be about to weird Miss Watkins out so badly, she won't come around anymore. Well, I've about decided it's haunted. Miss Watkins doesn't appear to be caught off guard by this. She just goes, Is that right? Last night, I could have sworn I saw two people peeping in that window right there. I called out, like whispered out to Colby. He ran out here, looked all around, didn't see anybody. Why is Miss Watkins just nodding her head like... Of course you saw two people peeping in the window. Kate continues. Colby got out there so fast, I thought there's no way anybody was there. Ms. Watkins looks to Kate like nothing could pull her away from this conversation right now. All she needs is a bucket of popcorn. When Kate stops, Watkins says, But said you think it's haunted? Is that all that's happened? No, it gets a lot more bizarre. Every night since we've got the TV hooked up, uh-huh. I'll be watching while I'm folding clothes or picking up or scrolling through my phone. Yeah. And right around 10.30, it's always near 10.30, the TV will turn itself to Nickelodeon, the channel Nickelodeon. Nobody's touched the remote or anything. Again, this woman is nodding as if she knew this was probably happening. She says, Well, that sounds like her. Like who? When Kate asks this, she sees Ms. Watkins' face open into shock. Oh, good gracious. Darling, you don't even know, do you? Know what? Oh, how terrible. What is it? How could they sell somebody this house without... Ms. Watkins is about to tell Kate about the horror associated with her house, about what happened in there, and how it has haunted the city of Tupelo for nearly 25 years. And Kate, mortified will find herself to some degree afraid of her own home and desperate to keep her children from hearing the story, thinking of all the houses they could have chosen in Tupelo, Mississippi. Why did it have to be this one? 
all the neighborhood streets they might have picked. For the love of God, why honey locust? Thursday evening, 1981. Donald Ochi has a good mind to turn around and go after that son of a bitch. No doubt he would talk, and it would be nice to bust his lip wide open for him, but Don really isn't so much angry at him as he is Vicky. Besides, he'll have plenty of time to catch up with Parker. He knows where the guy stays. Let him go and piss his pants, worrying. I mean, the guy obviously knew he was spotted, leaving, trying to act like nothing was wrong, looking at his watch and the road and nothing else. Donald walks into his apartment to find his doting wife vacuuming, as if she's been cleaning for hours. And there's his little girl, Lee, wearing only a diaper and pretending to vacuum alongside her mom using a dustpan. He slams the door, hoping to scare the shit out of Vicky. Too bad she must have known he was standing there. She looks up and says, Hey there. And Lee runs to him, shouting, Daddy. Don scoops her up, but walks directly to the playpen to deposit her. His eyes are still on Vicky. That's what you got to say to me? Hey there, should I throw a parade? Turn that fucking thing off. I think I didn't see that asshole leaving here just now. Don, let me ask you something. What'd you guys do with her while you were going at it? Donald is pointing to Lee, who is already halfway out of the pen. He goes to the turntable. Parker was here looking for you, actually. Really? He found me. He didn't look too interested in talking to me. Vicky has her hands stacked on the upright handle of the vacuum now, like she's watching an unimpressive performance. I really had no idea... I was marrying a paranoid person. I had no idea I was marrying a whore. Vicky yanks on the vacuum's cord, detaching it from the wall socket, and says, Okay, you got me, Don. I'm sleeping with every man on the base. Yeah, I guess I'll have to beat all her asses. You're lucky I'm not the kind of man to beat yours. Vicky stops wrapping the cable and whips her head around to look at him. Yeah, like you could. The room goes quiet. Staring at her, Donald Ochi actually ponders this for the first time. He would never physically attack her, but if he did, could he handle her? She was a little bigger, definitely meaner, and strong as hell. He starts letting an action scene play out in his mind, but is snapped out of it when Lee calls out what he name. Don sees that Lee has made her escape, and is standing by the closed bedroom door asking this question, pointing to the door. What he name? Don glances at Vicky. If she is troubled by this development, she does not show it. 
He strolls over to the door, patting Lee on the head. He opens the door, giving the bedroom a once-over. To Lee, he says, Looks like he gone now, honey. Vicky extends an arm toward Lee. Come on, baby, it's bath time. Lee runs to her mother. Watching his wife scoop the little girl up, Don thinks to himself, Christ, is she even really my kid? He's heard talk of being relocated to Germany. And right now, that seems like a pretty good idea. Arizona, Thanksgiving, 1989. It's a rare occasion for Donald. He's getting to tuck Lee into bed. At least he's attempting to do it. She's still flipping around, doing cartwheels, hanging upside down off the guest bed. When he tells her to stop before she hurts herself, she flashes him that mischievous smile. And he knows with absolute certainty that she is his child. He feels bad for ever questioning that. And he feels worse for all the time he lets slip by without being in her life. By the time the divorce from Vicky had been made official, he had been long gone. He finally persuades Lee to get under the covers and put her head on the pillow. And as much as it stings, it occurs to him that he probably wouldn't have even experienced this if he hadn't married Kathy. Kathy had more or less insisted he reconnect with Lee. He sure is grateful for that goddess of a gal. He feels he does not deserve her. Maybe she's his reward for dealing with Vicky Felton those years. But that's silly. His reward is right here looking up at him. Asking him another question about horses. Always with the questions, this girl. Donald decides to ask her one for a change. Maybe it will help chill her out. He asks how she's been liking school in Tupelo. She says she doesn't much like it. She doesn't like having to sit down so long. And she doesn't like reading so much. Doesn't like math. She'd rather be out doing something fun. And Donald thinks, yep, that's my daughter. Then she gets a faraway look in her tired eyes and speaks in a softer voice. She says, the other kids at school are just so mean. She's always so nice to them, but they're so mean. They tell her she's annoying. They tell her she's stupid. They call her Rochi Ochi. They never let her play with them during recess. She just goes and plays pretend horse riding and hopes one of the other kids will join her. But they never do. Donald is at a loss for a second. To his surprise, he's almost been brought to tears. He says, You know what, sweetie? Here's how I think you handle that. The next time one of them little shits calls you Rochi, you go up to him and you say, What was that? I didn't hear you. And if they say it again, Don holds up a clenched fist. You knock him on their ass. And I bet nobody else calls you that no more. Lee is laughing now. Okay, she says. Donald moves to the doorway and turns out the light. He has reconsidered. You know, honey, that maybe that's not the best way to handle it. Maybe you just tell him your dad's a military man and he's going to come see him. Okay? Lee laughs again and says, okay, and stops Don just as he's about to say goodnight. 
She tells him the kids also say Mom is a weirdo. Don smiles. Well, I got a point there, kiddo. Good night. Love you. Folks, allow me to take a sec and interrupt the episode just to kind of explain what's going on here. Maybe you are a current A Sip of Justice subscriber who has not yet become familiar with the case of Lee Ochi. Maybe you followed my previous Ochi podcast series and you're wondering why this strange new show has suddenly popped up. Well, here's the deal. I've been working on this case off and on for about four years now. And I have new information. I decided not to simply tack this information on the end of what I have done previously because A. It has always bothered me that the telling of this important story is sort of fragmented. There's 13, which is jointly produced by myself and TV station WTVA. And then there's 13 2, which I produced on my own. I want to provide the story top to bottom in one location where it will never be taken down, put back up, taken down again, and so on. And B, I feel I now understand podcast storytelling much better than I did when I began production of the original 13, and even when I did 13 too. Hence, this new comprehensive telling of the Lee Ochi mystery. Another thing I want to make clear, all my findings on this case will be handed over to certain Ochi family members and to appropriate law enforcement. The primary interest of a sip of justice is justice in the state of Mississippi. However, this work does require a lot of time, effort, and expense. So, this first episode of Honey Locust is the only one that will be available on a free feed. If you want to hear the remaining six episodes of this show, you can click the link in show notes, or you can just go to asipofjustice.com. There, you will learn how to become an ASOJ premium subscriber, gaining access to this Leochi series, as well as the series Big Heart Broken, investigating the murder of Chandra May in the Central SIP 1986. All right. Thank you for your patience. Hope to see you over on Patreon. Now, back to the episode. Tupelo, Mississippi. June 1992. Jordan Morris has been hoping he would see her here. And here she is, back at the neighborhood pool. She's older than him, but he bets she'll talk to him. Maybe even hang out with him. Because even though she's pretty... Nobody ever talks to her. Maybe she just doesn't care. Maybe she's the one who won't talk to them. It's like she has so much fun being her, she doesn't need anyone else. Every time, she just comes right in and cannonballs into the water, no matter who she might splash or land on. She does all those hilarious moves and dances off the diving board. So cool. So funny. What would all the kids who made fun of him at Pontotoc say if they saw him holding hands with her? Jordan's sister says she's going out to the car for something, and that's good. 
Now maybe he can talk to this girl. But he can't quite work up the courage to just walk up and start jabbering. How are you supposed to do that? What would you say? Hey, I'm Dash X. I don't know how I got here. You're pretty. Finally, it comes to him. He goes up on the diving board and does his own silly dance. It's sort of just like Ren and Stimpy. Happy, happy, joy, joy. And he jumps in. When he gets his head back above water and gets his long, dark hair out of his face, it seems like no one has even noticed his big effort. No eyes are on him, least of all the girl's eyes. She looks like she's zoned out in her own world, kind of slicing the water with her hands and mumbling to herself. Jordan's embarrassed, of course, but tries to play it like he does not care, like she always plays it. He walks to concessions to console himself with a couple Laffy Taffies. And just as he pops a banana, he hears her voice say, That was the best dive of the day. When he turns to find her standing inches away from him, he almost chokes on his candy. He knows his face has probably turned blood red, but he manages to get out. No, I think that prize goes to you. Jordan has an afternoon he will never forget. He learns his crush's name. It's Lee Ochi, and he finds out they have a lot in common. When his sister shows back up on the scene and interrupts, he wants to kick her in the shins at first, but then she does something incredible. She thinks to ask Lee for her phone number so they can call and talk to her sometime. When Lee writes her number down on a napkin and hands it over, Big Sister winks at him. Good God, could she be a little more obvious? Jordan realizes Lee has been smiling right at him as he gives his sister the angry face. She tells him, You can call me pretty much any time, but just so you know, I'm only allowed to talk for ten minutes. That's fine with Jordan. He'd take ten seconds if that was all he could have. It's become a regular thing. Every day, right after school, he calls Lee, and they recap the day. Who said or did something hateful to her or to him? What was for lunch, and where did you sit? Who made you laugh today without realizing it? Which teacher made you roll your eyes? Then there were the evening phone calls. He would always dial her up close to bedtime. Then the talk was more like what they watched on TV that night funny commercials, songs they liked, things they wanted to buy. Sometimes the 10-minute rule was in place. Sometimes Lee could talk longer. The weirdest part was that, usually, when she was told to hang up at the 10-minute mark, all she had to do was wait another minute or so, and then she could have another 10 minutes. Whatever, Jordan thinks. All of 11 years old, he is pretty sure he will one day marry. Leochi. It feels like his heart is still pounding from that time she gave him a quick kiss on the cheek. Maybe soon he'll show her all the drawings he's done in his notebooks. Two kids they'll probably have, maybe three. And they'll probably live somewhere like New York City, far away from the bullies. Maybe Paris, France. This will be a fun thing to ask Lee, Jordan thinks. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Enough time has gone by since their first 10-minute evening call, so he punches in her number and waits. 
Every now and then, her mom answers. Usually, though, Lee herself will pick it up right away. But this time, it's not Lee who answers the phone, and it's not Mrs. Yarborough. It is Lee's stepdad, Mr. Yarborough. Yes, hello? Oh, can I speak to Lee, please? Do you know what time it is? Um, is it too late? Who is this? I'm her... I, my name is Jordan. Yeah, I know who you are, Jordan. I know what you got on your mind. Sir? I know who you are, and I know where to find you. You hear me? Yes, sir. You ever call this house again? I'm gonna whoop your ass. You got me? Yes, sir. Jordan Morse does not try reaching Lee Ochi again this night. Lee has told him before that she's kind of afraid of Barney. Now he understands why. I mean, why was he so pissed off? Maybe Barney will not be at home tomorrow after school and he'll be able to talk to his girlfriend again. He keeps thinking about that, lying in bed, trying to go to sleep, trying to block out the sound of Barney's voice still echoing in his head. Can he call her that? His girlfriend? Jordan wishes there was a poster of Leochi so he could hang it on his wall. And he wonders what she's doing and thinking right now. Laredo, Texas. 1992. Donald Ochi is worn the hell out. Keeping up with his daughter is not an easy task, but it sure is fun. They have spent the afternoon running around this campsite. Their casual walk turned into a game of hide-and-seek. Fishing turned into jumping in the water with their clothes on, splashing around. Touring the grounds on the four-wheeler turned into hauling ass down trails just as fast as was possible. And she still seems wide awake as they lay side by side in the tent in their sleeping bags. She asks him about his wife, her stepmom, and about her baby stepsister, and whether or not he thinks she'll make a good big sister. Are you kidding me? You'll be the greatest big sister. All this stuff you can teach her to do? Maybe one day we'll go camping, all four of us. She tells him she's kind of got a boyfriend now. What? You better tell him he's got to go through your old man first. Well, he's really just a little kid, she tells him. Just a boy who kind of looks up to her. But he's really cute. He teases her about this. He might just say no when the boy asks for her hand in marriage. Lee laughs and tells him to shut it. But suggests maybe... He can say hello to Jordan at her birthday party. Well, you know I'm getting you a nice present, but I'm afraid I can't make it to the party. She pouts about this a little, and he explains. I just don't think it'd be good for me to be around your mom and Barney. It could go sideways, and that would embarrass you. To this, Lee says, Barney probably won't be at the party. He's not going to live at the house anymore. Well, you don't say. What happened with him and your mom? Where's he going? Lee says she doesn't really have an answer for either of those questions, so will he come to the party? I don't know. We'll see, honey. Either way, I sure am proud of my beautiful little girl becoming a teenager. Don't go turn it into a little shit, okay, kid? She won't, she says, and it looks like 
She's finally allowing sleep to creep up on her. Honey, is that a bruise? Don can't believe he hasn't noticed this earlier, the purple skin just visible at the back of her neck. Lee tells him she doesn't know what he's talking about. He pulls her loose t-shirt down to reveal a bruise extending all the way across her right shoulder. How'd this happen? Lee asks if he's sure it's a bruise. It sure as hell is. She says she has no idea how it got there. A few seconds pass, Don thinking, before he turns her back toward him. Now you listen to me, okay? If your mom ever pushes you around too hard, hits you, any of that shit, you gotta report it to me, alright? I will make it stop. Okay, she says, but she looks frightened. Is that what's going on? No, daddy, she says. Drifting into sleep a little while later, Donald assures himself he will keep a close eye on this situation. Honey Locust is based on a true story, though some names have been altered and dialogue enhanced. All depictions are based on historical research and personal interviews with players in the story. Interviewees include Donald Ochi, Vicki Felton, Bart Aguirre, Lauren Ochi, Jordan Morse, Margaret Tucker, Billy White, Terry Smith, Kathy Shapiro, Annabeth Williams, Allison Duckworth, and others who wish to remain anonymous. Additional research comes primarily from reports by WTVA and the Northeast Mississippi Daily Journal, including the journal's own podcast series, Open. I'm Jason Leusry, and if you're a patron or about to become one, thanks. I'll talk to you soon.